0: Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we are looking at legacies of armed conflict in Northern Ireland. How are punishment attacks today connected to the violence of the past? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Northern Ireland experienced three decades of violence from the late 1960s to the late 1990s. Thousands of people were killed, injured or bereaved. The so-called Troubles were brought to an end by the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement of 1998, an accord between the British and Irish governments and most of the main political parties in Northern Ireland that established new governing arrangements for Northern Ireland within the UK and set out how Northern Ireland might in future leave the UK and become part of a united Ireland if majorities both north and south of the border wanted it. In many ways, the 1998 agreement is a model peace settlement, power-sharing governments sputters, but survives. Everyday lives have been transformed. Violence between the communities has almost ended. Yet many legacies of the past live on. Today, we're focusing on one of those, namely violence within communities, and in particular, punishment attacks meted out by paramilitary groups against people whom they accuse of criminal or antisocial behavior. What explains the persistence of such attacks? And does that carry lessons for peacebuilding processes elsewhere. Well, two of my colleagues have just published a study exploring just these questions. Kristen Backe is Professor of Political Science and International Relations here in the UCL Department of Political Science and leads our Conflict and Change Research Cluster. She's also affiliated with the Peace Research Institute in Oslo. And she'll be a familiar voice to regular podcast listeners. Kit Rickard, meanwhile, is a PhD student in the department, as well as a research associate and teaching assistant, and again, a member of the Conflict and Change Research Cluster. He is just about to submit his doctoral thesis on how external states affect civil wars. And I'm delighted to say that Kristen and Kit join me now. So, welcome to you both. And, Kristen, could we start? by setting the scholarly context of your study. What are the questions that drive your research generally, and how did those lead you to this particular study on Northern Ireland?
1: Thank you, Alan, and thank you for having us. Um, So my research in general is about political violence and contentious politics, political mobilization, dynamics of violence, institutions that can and cannot foster peace. And much of the research I've done in the last 10 years or so is about so-called post-conflict societies, many of which turn out to not be so post-conflict after all. Uh, And I began by examining dynamics of post-war state building in de facto states in Russia's near abroad, so quite far away from the context we're going to talk about uh, today. And in so doing, I became interested in how non-state actors establish themselves as authorities. And the research we'll talk about today, paramilitary group social control in Northern Ireland, builds on that interest in informal sources of authority. And there is a growing body of research that focuses on how rebels rule during wars, during conflicts, yet relatively little is known about the legacies of such wartime order. And that's where the interest here, uh, you know, or that's the motivating interest here. Mm. The research is part of a larger project on attitudes to peace in three post-war societies, Guatemala, Nepal, and Northern Ireland. And it's a collaborative project with in Diestra at the Norwegian Institute, University of Science and Technology and Helga Binningsbö at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo. And central to the development of this, uh, the Northern Ireland bit of this project is Kit, uh, one of the brilliant PhD students I work with here at UCL, And I came into this project being interested in paramilitary group social control, but I wasn't quite aware of how much control they have until I started working uh, with Kit.
0: Interesting. So Kit, let's move to you and think about this in relation to Northern Ireland. So can you fill us in a bit on the, the phenomenon that we're discussing here? Some of our listeners, I guess, won't be familiar with punishment attacks in Northern Ireland. Could you set out just what those are and how significant they are in Northern Ireland today?
2: Yeah, great. Um, so I think a decision might be helpful to use the definitions used by the police, because um, as we discuss uh, the phenomenon, we'll find that it is quite uh, grey around the edges. Um, so the police in Northern Ireland, known by their acronym PSNI, uh, define a paramilitary style assault um, as, one, uh, as, a, as an assault that's usually carried out by a loyalist or a Republican group on members of their own community. The assault will often involve major or minor physical injury to the injured party, typically involving a group of assailants armed with, for example, iron bars or or baseball bats. And they define a paramilitary style shooting as a result in the injured party being shot in the knees, elbows, feet, ankles, or thighs. And the motive is supposedly to punish the person for antisocial activities. Historically, the Republic, like, so in Northern Ireland, you have Republican groups, these are those that. seek to unite the north with the republic of ireland and uh, break away from the united kingdom and you have loyalist groups those that seek to retain the the union with the united kingdom Um, and i should also add you know these are groups that that wish to do so through force through the use of organized violence and so historically the republican groups uh, were more likely to shoot as a punishment and that's probably because they had more ready access to firearms and this has become a kind of norm where um, when you look at the breakdown of these Two types of punishment. Um, they're not a perfect measure, but they're probably a good proxy for the activity across these either Republican or loyalist uh, groups. Um, the PSNI refer to antisocial activities, and this is a bit of a catch all term um, and includes uh, most petty crime you can think of, but uh, also um, uh, drug or, or, or drug dealing. Uh, historically, paramilitary groups, especially the Republican ones, uh, were, were very active in combating drug dealing. Uh, but of course, in recent years, they've been accused uh, of being active or at least profiting indirectly from this uh, drug trade. These are the kind of uh, typical types of punishment, let's say, uh, but they're really just a step in the ladder. And, and they're part of what is a, a bigger punishment system. So at the very lower end, uh, it's very, very hard to measure. Um, this can be a threat uh, issued informally to someone to cease and, cease, uh, and assist or whatever. Um, uh, and at the very higher end, this can be um, uh, an assassination, a murder, uh, but it can also be uh, exile um, uh, from Northern Ireland or at least from the community in which they're accused of, of committing a crime. Um, and then even within these types of punishments, uh, there are degrees. So uh shooting, very kind of infamously in Northern Ireland, you can have clean shootings or dirty shootings, um, uh, which, you know, uh, a dirty shooting is much more likely to maim someone permanently than a clean shooting.
0: So what does, the, what does that actually mean? What...
2: So uh, in, in terms of the, the actually how it's carried out, generally a dirty shooting is, is a kneecap, when you're shot in a kneecap from behind the leg, and so the when the bullet emerges on the other side, your kneecap is blown off. And so it's very unlikely that that you'll walk without a limp after a dirty kneecapping, as opposed to a clean one where you're shot from the front and um a lot of the, the back is, is flesh and, and muscle and that, that recovers better. Um but I should say like that's again is just one of the kind of degrees within these um you have I, I don't want to glorify it too much, right? Because you know, if you talk <laughs> it's almost like you're kind of glorifying it. How cool is this? But um you have, you know, clips and, and different types of punishment, and they're all generally horrific, but different degrees are, are horrific. I think also what's worth noting is from an outside perspective, when you look at the statistics of shootings and beatings, um, often you assume that shootings are worse than beatings, and and based on our research, a lot of people within the community would much rather be shot than than beaten because, you know, it's it's a it's much quicker to be shot, and and the damage is more predictable, if you like
0: and how common are these kids how 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 frequent are these attacks and how how spread are they through through northern ireland
2: so uh, if you look at the the official statistics since the end of the conflict uh, that's 1998 the peace agreement was signed uh until 2020 we have over 3000 of these attacks so i think the number is at 3200 um what does that actually mean uh in 2020 there were 57 attacks 32 beatings and 14 shootings, and again this is interesting because you can capture the activity across the different groups. With, it's a rough measure, but you can capture the activity. Um, and this was a decrease from 85 in 2019, but you know it, at these levels it hovers a lot. So uh, over the past 10 years, the, the trend hasn't been downwards. Um, uh it peaked in in 2017 with 101 and if you look at over the entire kind of post-conflict period it really peaks a lot in in the early years so from 98 till about 2004 you have a lot of these attacks and that's you're probably more capturing um intergroup dynamics between paramilitary groups than what we're interested in which is really the social control yeah it's more akin to a turf war at that point but now it's this is very much within the community and those that are targeted are generally very often, I would say, you know, the most vulnerable within those communities. Yeah.
0: Mm, yeah. So your study asks essentially how far patterns in punishment attacks today can be explained by patterns of violence in the past and what mechanisms these connections work through. Um, before we get into how you seek to answer that question, which I think is fascinating, actually, Kristen, do you want to just sum up what answers you find, what conclusions you reach?
1: So... Just a brief sort of overview of what our argument uh, is. So, Paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland are often seen as criminal groups. They're plain and simple. And while there's little doubt that several of them are engaged in criminal activities, in some communities, they operate as people with influence because they have a certain social standing. And and that's a legacy uh, from the control they were exercising during the conflict. And as I, as I said in the introduction, there is a growing body of work that looks at how armed groups create informal institutions uh, in wartime. Um, and we argue that armed actors can benefit from the social control these informal institutions grant them long after the conflict comes to an end. And there are two key mechanisms here that drive this. So first, there's a top-down mechanism. So instrumentally, armed actors may use the legacy of wartime institutions or the wartime order they were creating to undermine the state for either political or criminal motives in the so-called post-conflict period. Either way, they want to control information, mobilize support, and recruit new members. And they do so in areas that their predecessors controlled. There's also a sort of second part to this top-down mechanism, and that's more of a socialization uh, aspect. Um, Through socialization, members of armed groups may have become used to positions of power or a certain standing within their communities and want to hold on to that position. So that's sort of the top-down, the motives on the part of the armed actors. Then there's also, we argue, a bottom-up mechanism here. Through socialization, civilians have come to rely on informal institutions. So Order provided by non-state actors for their strategies of survival, so to speak. So in areas where armed groups developed informal institutions during the conflict, people may have come to accept and internalize norms stipulating that certain aspects of governance uh, is done and perhaps done better, uh, not, you know, or is done by the non-state actors, not done by the state. Um, so people come become used to relying on non-state actors, informal sources of authority for certain kinds of quote unquote um, justice. Um, so that's the argument uh, in brief
0: and and so your your argument is that both of those mechanisms, the top down and the bottom up are both operating here. and that that um, bottom up one is fascinating. I mean is it, um, it you you describe it there in terms of people feeling that they're used to this way of uh, achieving order. Or potentially they feel it's a better way of achieving order. I mean, I, I guess you, you can see that that might be the case if if they reject the state and they reject the validity of, of, of state order, which you would expect to get from the Republican side. But one of the interesting things is we get this on both the Republican and, and the loyalist sides here.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, we would in the, in some of our interviews, and we'll talk about you know, the research we did uh, in, in a moment, but also in you know the work that others have done, You'll you'll see that people talk about um, you know they'll say things that such as we just don't go to the police uh, or that you know the the quote justice provided by these groups is sort of described as swift or speedy justice uh, you know quicker than going to the formal uh, formal institutions
2: yeah and can can I just add on the on the the loyalist point. So we, you would expect because, you know, historically from the outside, they seem to be pro-state. And and a lot of the literature that we, uh, by colleagues as well in this department, Neil Mitchell comes to mind, right, uh, Sabina Carey at Mannheim looks at pro-state militia groups or pro-government militia groups. And I think in the Northern Irish context, <laughs> the difference between being pro-state and pro-government is really important. Um, because whilst they are pro-state, um, they historically have a very, very uh, contentious uh, relationship with the government uh, that sits in Westminster generally, and also uh, with the, the the forces of, of the state, so the, with the police and, and and with the army, and so it's uh, when you when you speak to members of loyalist uh, paramilitary groups or those from the community, they will very often refer to the fact that they were the first to murder a a, a soldier in in Northern Ireland during the conflict, right? And what emerged. I mean, really, this is about the emergence of the groups, but they emerged to defend their communities uh, because the police couldn't. And so <laughs> they have uh, yeah. Yeah, that kind of relationship.
0: Yeah, very, very interesting. Let's talk about the methodology here. So you've both, uh, Kristen, you referred to interviews and Kit, you've also referred to speaking with these people. Uh, Kit, do you want to explain a bit further what methodology you've used in this paper?
2: Yeah, uh, we use a I would say a, a wide range of methods because it's such a, a kind of thick and uh, and difficult uh, causal story that we make, and we we actually think that that this is working through multiple mechanisms, and therefore we employ multiple ways of measuring this. Um, in the first step, we we write we basically do kind of hist- archival uh, research. And, and looking at, at, at other political scientists and other uh, scholars from the conflict um, and try and trace the emergence of these um, of these governance institutes in, institutions if you like, and how they emerge in the conflict and this this part is important not only because it's an interesting I think an interesting read. I think it's like interesting just how these institutions come about but it's interest, it's important because we show that these groups, which are nominally are violent actors, also take part in, in providing limited uh, but but public goods. So um, we're interested in the justice system and the kind of community or communal policing they do, or vigilantism, if you like. Um, uh, but they also, you know, more famously or, or just as famously have the Black taxi cab service and republican groups set up Irish schools these kind of things and and so they're providing for the community uh, some public goods and we also show that these institutions emerge during the conflict and not before and so those two points are very important in terms of identifying the effect of 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 such institutions in the long term Uh, at a second step we explore um, again we're interested in the spatial where these where these where this violence and where these institutions across space and time. And so we explore the locations of violence during and after the conflict. And so we first map out violence in order to explore where informal killings occurred during the conflict and where this violence persists today. Um, and so as a first step, you look at the visual trends, and then we r- run statistical models. So the data we use for the violence during the troubles um, is, is data from a certain index of deaths, which are geolocated um, and this is a, a kind of database um, which which includes uh, you know who died, who was the perpetrator, what was the reasoning behind that uh, murder or death um, And then secondly, uh, how do you capture <laughs> where these groups are active today uh, is quite a difficult thing and we use data from the police service in Northern Ireland um, which we're really grateful for for them giving to us um, and we use it anonymously, which uh, shows, where the attacks occurred. uh, And these are the same attacks I referred to earlier uh, when describing the recent statistics.
0: So that's basically showing you that attacks that are happening today or since 1998 are happening in the same areas, essentially, as attacks that were happening before 1998.
2: That's correct, yeah. We, we, We first do a kind of visual inspection and it's quite evident that that is the case. However you know we try and control for alternative stories which in our case you might think it's uh, deprivation uh, you might think that these it's something to do with crime rates or just a composition of the community and so we control for these and we do find support i, I mean in this kind of uh, yeah. multiple variables in a single regression model like these are significant control variables however um, our indicator for where these institutions existed during the conflict which is uh, where these uh, inter intergroup intracommunal deaths occurred uh, is, is highly significant in both predicting whether or not an attack will happen in a post-conflict period, but also the intensity of those attacks.
0: Okay, so that's that's giving you kind of correlation, if you like, but then you're digging deeper in order to get into the causal mechanisms. So you're doing interviews and also survey work, yeah?
2: That's correct. So uh, the, f- f- we first do interviews and this really allows us to, well, in our analysis, we an- analyze the interviews and we we do field work um and this allows us to to get a sense of um uh, this kind of top-down mechanism really
0: so who are you interviewing
2: so we spoke with uh, the police in northern ireland uh, we spoke with uh, many local academics uh, community activists and uh, former members of paramilitary organizations and and notably like the context within which you speak to the latter two is generally through these restorative justice organizations which are honestly this is where I want to spend the rest of my research because they're so interesting these organizations but these are organizations that act as kind of go between between paramilitary actors and the police and some of them work more with the police and some of them work more with the paramilitary actors and kristen do you want to come in
1: yeah no i mean these organizations uh, just to cont- say so continue what kit is uh, saying are are They, um, many of them are run by former paramilitaries. uh, And that gives them a certain, so people who now take and have a distance from violence and that gives them a certain standing in the community. So they might be able to mitigate between paramilitary groups and the sort of victims of the paramilitary group activities uh, today.
2: Well, just as a final point, uh, we we analyze survey data to really get at this bottom up mechanism. And of course, this is probably the hardest thing to really capture um, and so we employ a survey that Kristen um, fielded in 2015 with with, 2016. Her, 2016, apologies, with her colleagues uh, uh, that she referred to at the beginning um, and it's part of the Attitudes for Peace uh, project at, at, at Peace Research Institute of Oslo um, and so uh, we basically uh, combine this survey which is geolocated with our geolocation of attacks and we find that, um, that People that live in areas where there are many Republican attacks are much less likely to support or to trust the police or to turn to the police if they have an issue. And those who live in areas with many loyalist attacks are much more likely to turn to informal uh, sources of authority.
0: Yeah. And you're, so you're taking that as an indication that the bottom up mechanism is working there. I, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm wondering if um, people are sort of reflecting what they're supposed to say. Uh, Yeah, I mean, surveys as a result of top-down pressure.
2: Yeah, I would say the survey alone doesn't do that. It's really the interviews and the fieldwork that allows us to make that uh, to make that link. So during the interviews and during the fieldwork, um, uh, what we heard over and over was that there are people who use uh, these attacks to delegitimize the police right and that's our top-down uh, mechanism but that there is also a folk memory in certain communities often very small communities referred to as like bubbles they're often just a couple of streets uh, in urban and, uh, areas um and in these areas where they have this kind of folk memory people come to expect as Kristen referred to earlier this fast justice which is described as swift or, or speedy Kristen
1: yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you, in terms of the question you had, uh, Alan, which is really, can you establish causality, you know, through using the survey there? And, and you're right, in that you know, it is correlational what we can uh, point to there, which is why we're trying to throw what we can of different methods uh, at it, because you know, the proposition we're really testing is that if the geographic persistence of informal institutions from the conflict into the post-conflict period is also driven by civilian socialization then civilians living in areas controlled by armed groups today are likely to rate informal authorities highly and be skeptical of formal authorities, right? So that's what we test. And there, we can't test the causality uh, in that uh, through the survey um, uh, and the research design that we uh that we have um mm. here which is why also these interviews you know talking to people was really mm. really crucial here and also the you know really mapping out you know what these institutions what this kind of governance looked like during the conflict and what it looks like um today
0: and do you find that people are willing to speak with you and willing to answer the questions that you want answers to Kristen?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the, you know there are different parts of it. Uh, I can talk a bit about the survey, and then I'll let I'll talk talk more about you know the field work that we we did. So this is research that involves human subjects, uh, so human beings. And I should say that you know as with all research involving human subjects and particularly you know sensitive topics, we've gone through ethics processes to make sure that we're not doing any harm, that we're not pe- putting people at risk, and that you know we only talk to people if they're willing to talk to us, right? Um. And in the survey itself, so this was fielded in 2016, it was a big survey, about a 40 minute interview, sort of on people's doorsteps, so it's face to face, uh, asking people a range of questions about the conflict itself, about the post so called post conflict period, what they think about the peace agreement, and then also what they think about various sources of authority, right? What they think about the police. And then we tried to get at what they think about informal sources of authority. Now, in this survey, we did not ask people directly about paramilitary groups. We used this, uh, we used um, some sort of more indirect way to try to get at what they think of informal sources of authority. And through pilots, you know, tests of the survey instrument, we're we're pretty sure that we're able to capture what we want. But you know the key measure we have for whether people in the study Kit and I uh, have just published, um, for whether people are turning to formal or informal uh, authorities, is an imagined scenario. So we ask people, a man lives in a neighborhood where there is a severe problem of antisocial behavior, such as vandalism, car theft. What would he do? And then we give, um, we give the respondents a range of options of going to various sources of authority. Uh, it could be the police. It could be community organizations. Um, and the question we use to get at how effective they think it would be to go to informal sources, of, informal sources of authority, is contact a member of the community who has influence. Um, and then we, are, you know, do so they rate sort of how effective it would be to go to that? They also rate how effective it would be to go to the police or other uh, kinds of authorities. Um, So in this survey, just because we were worried that people wouldn't respond to a question that was directly about paramilitary groups, we didn't ask them that. I should say we're doing another survey at the moment, which has been put on hold due to COVID, with another team of researchers at the University of Oslo and at the Peace Research Institute um, in Oslo. And in that survey, we're actually asking people more directly about paramilitary groups, uh, what they think of them. And, you know, I think this is... We could probably have done that in our 2016 survey, too. Uh, I think we were more cautious in designing that, because this isn't really a taboo topic in Northern Ireland. There's you know, this is in the rest of the United Kingdom. I think we're not so aware of that this is happening yeah. But in Northern Ireland. People are acutely aware that this is happening. There are public yeah. campaigns to end these attacks, right? There are big posters on you know, bus stops with paramilitaries. Don't help you. They hurt you. Um, so uh, I think asking people about these attacks is not, I think, as taboo as we initially thought when we designed this survey. Um, I'll let t- Kit talk about the, you know, talking to people in our in our field work.
2: In yeah. the interviews, yeah. Uh, just to add on the on the survey that we're doing at the moment, we also combine these direct questions with experimental questions, which allow us to ensure that there is uh, that these are valid, like they, that we're getting that that there isn't this des- desirability or uh, a bias in people's responses um mm-hmm. but um so yeah with the interviews uh, i mean it's these communities are quite small uh but i would say there are many voices that want to speak on behalf of them <laughs> and so in, in a sense it's it's uh i i think finding people to interview is, is not difficult in the sense that uh, many people will speak to you about their, what they their, the work they do in those communities, um, and the paramilitary influence that remains in Northern Ireland. Uh, I think what one and what we were very conscious of was trying to get as many of those voices from as wide a spectrum as possible, um, because um, you yeah it really comes to the nature of those attacks for a lot of of the, the people in the community so whether or not they are predominantly uh, crime motivated or motivated in protecting the community and so you know depending who you're speaking on uh, you'll have a very different sense of why these attacks are happening um, but yeah that that, that was really yeah. I think the the, the, the main thing.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the time. But uh, before, we, before we finish, it would be really interesting to just get a sense of what are the lessons from this research? I guess both in terms of Northern Ireland, you know, could, could peace building have been done better? Would that have produced a better outcome in terms of levels of violence? And also, suppose, what, uh, do, do your findings transfer to other countries? You mentioned, Kristen, that this is part of a multi-country study. So how does this transfer to other countries as well?
1: Yeah, um, maybe let's say something about the Northern Ireland bit first, and then mm-hmm. we can talk about how it travels to other contexts. Uh, and we talk a bit about how to do that you know, in, in the paper we published. So the Good Friday Agreement has been hailed as this, an international model in many ways for peace agreements, uh, and other peace agreements are modeled on it. Now, not everyone in Northern Ireland is happy about this peace agreement, uh, but the violent conflict itself has not resumed. Right? So you can see that as a success of this peace agreement. However, it is a f- fragile peace in many ways. And we saw this in the spring when we saw unrest in the streets of, of Belfast. And the reason for the riots in the spring were, were complex, loyalist discontent with the consequences of Brexit. Brexit, long-term deprivation, disillusionment with governments in London and Belfast, low confidence in the police, you know, lots of things went into these, uh, these riots, as did paramilitary groups. Now it's not clear if the riots were orchestrated or they were spontaneous, but they were concentrated in areas. that are controlled by loyalist paramilitary groups. And I think particularly noteworthy about the influence of these groups was that there, you know, there are many actors who tried to stop these riots, and community groups, youth organizations were definitely central uh, in doing so. But the, the paramilitary groups were too, right? Certainly in the first way, when we saw the you know the, the rioting sort of calm down a bit, was after the paramilitary groups, loyalist paramilitary groups went out and said, you know, let's calm down, right? So that's indicative of the influence that they they still have. So I think our findings can point to the importance of post-war reform efforts, recognizing that. You know both the commissioning and security sector reform require consideration of how wartime actors do or do not also govern, which is an aspect of post-conflict society that Northern Ireland in some ways is still struggling with, right. So our findings support the independent reporting commission, which recommends a twin, track approach that combines, and we're quoting here from this report, combines policing and justice responses alongside measures to tackle the deep systemic socioeconomic issues in the communities most affected by paramilitarism. And importantly, I think our findings emphasize the sort of the socio side of persistent paramilitary control. Like there isn't just this top-down thing. There is also this, you know, something to this bottom-up mechanism that we would like to, you know, explore uh, further. Now, Kit, do you want to say a little bit about how the you know we think the findings travel?
2: In terms of uh, the extent to which they travel beyond Northern Ireland, while it wasn't the main aim of uh, of this research paper, we do uh, outline three what we think are potential scope conditions, which may uh, uh, allow us to think of ways in which it is generalizable. The first is uh, how the conflict ends. So in this case, you have. Uh, what we're like belligerents of the conflict, which remain on the scene and they remain uh, generally in these communities uh, compared to Sri Lanka, for instance, where you have a total defeat of the Tamil Tigers, you're unlikely to get or less likely to get this pattern potentially. The other is about state capacity. Um, you know, the United Kingdom is a strong state. And so we think that if this persists in in, in this uh in this uh, environment, it's likely to persist in, in weaker states, um, but again, that's something that uh, we encourage a few more research on. And then finally, um is regime type, which I think is potentially the most interesting because I initially thought, well, you don't expect this in a democracy, <laughs> but uh, uh, I was told that, of course, maybe authoritarian states just wouldn't allow these dissenting voices to persist in a way that democracies actually do. Right? So, um, the United Kingdom can't just. Go in and uh, 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 and removed his voices. So um, yeah, that I think is how it, how we speak to it.
0: Fascinating. Well, that's been so interesting. Uh, Kit and Kristen, thank you so much for that conversation. I wish we could talk longer, but as ever, the clock is against us on the podcast. And I can strongly recommend the article, uh, which is called Legacies of Wartime Order, Punishment Attacks and Social Control in Northern Ireland by Kit Rickard and Kristen Bucker, And it appears in Security Studies, just uh, published in o- October of this year. And next week, we'll be back again with another fascinating episode. So, as ever, to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Renwick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL
2: Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.